0: We're continuing our series in the little letter written by the half-brother of Jesus, James. So we're going to be at the end of chapter 4, if you want to find that. Put your finger there while I um, tell you a little parable. It'll be up here on the screen. There it is. You can read along or listen, listen to me as I read this, this parable that uh, I once heard. Here's how it goes. Here's a parable of life for you to ponder on. A group of tourists is sitting in a bus that is passing through gorgeously beautiful country, lakes and mountains and green fields and rivers. But the shades of the bus are all pulled down. They do not have the slightest idea of what lies beyond the windows of the bus. And all the time of their journey is spent in squabbling over who will have the seat of honor on the bus, who will be applauded, and who will be well considered. And so they remain until journey's end. This is a parable describing... Life. We're all on a bus and we're born with the shades pulled down. And when you can't see what's beyond the bus, then you make for the best life you can get inside the bus. It's very similar to how King Solomon described the way life works. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were talking about wisdom because. James is so steeped in Hebrew wisdom, and I think it's important to go back and I, and I think that he's kind of speaking to this this morning to this idea. The way King Solomon described this bus parable in his book, uh, Ecclesiastes," is he compared two ways of living life: uh, life under the under the sun, he called it was. Life that was just lived as if everything that is and exists is what is under the sun. Whatever the sun's light touches, that's all there is. It's what we would call today uh, naturalism or materialism. It's just there's no, nothing outside of the material universe. Everything that's under the sun, that's all that life is. That would be the same as living just inside the bus with the shades pulled down. But Solomon also talked about the reality that we actually live under the heavens where God reigns from his throne, which is way above above and beyond the sun. In fact, the one who reigns on the throne created the sun and everything under it. So for Solomon, living under the heavens would be thinking outside the bus, Uh, with the shades pulled up, understanding that there's more to life than what's just in here. And so, as you think about that, and as we hear today's passage from James' letter, um, James is going to warn us about two ways that we are prone to live just under the sun, or we're prone to live just thinking inside the bus with the shades pulled down. Um, And so I want you. I told you all this before, because as we read, as I read this passage, these two passages to you, I want you to see if you can see uh, how James describes life inside the bus or under the sun, and life uh, and thinking outside the bus or living life under the heaven. So if you would stand with me, turn to James chapter four, verse thirteen and hear the word of the God who loves us, beginning in James 4.13. And James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet For him, it is sin. Come now, James says again, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This is the strong word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you uh, help us to see what you want us to see in these words uh, from your servant James this morning? Um, Father, would you pull the shades up for us so that we can see uh, reality and live in it by the power of the Spirit of Jesus? In whose name, I pray, Amen. Please be seated. So now let let's uh, let's think for together for a few minutes. This we're going to be a little more interactive this morning than I typically am. Um, James is describing in these verses two different situations. There's One in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4, and then the other situation is in the first six verses of chapter 5. And what I want to know from you, and I'm going to ask you some questions here in a moment, is did you see how both of these scenarios have to do with thinking outside the bus or uh, thinking above the sun and under the heavens? And we're going to look at the second one first. Um, That's preacher's privilege. I'm going to take it backwards, okay? So let's look first at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Here's the interactive part. I I want you to answer these questions. And because I am completely deaf in one ear, you're going to have to help me two ways. Raise your hand when you're going to give an answer, and then speak up so I can hear your answer, okay? So, in James 5, 1 through 6, I want to know, where do you see this inside the bus with the shades down thinking? Where do you see the, the life is just under the sun thinking? Here's a hint. Look at verses 5 and 6. So, where do you see this inside the bus just under the sun thinking? just where do you see it it's in those verses but how does James describe it David say that one more time yes preoccupation with material riches Um, what else How else would you describe that? What are the words James is using? Self-indulgence. It's very much like what the parable said, that they spend their whole lives squabbling over who will have the seat of honor on the bus, who will be applauded, who will be well-considered. They're trying to get the best seat on the bus. And that's what James is describing here. They've just, these folks have just lived their life on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. They've fattened their hearts. And in order to get there, they've condemned and murdered righteous people. They've used and abused people to get the best seat on the bus or what they think is the best seat of the bus. So then, now here's my next question. Where do you see James encouraging us to think outside the bus or to think under the heavens in these six verses. How does he encourage us to think outside of the bus and under the heavens? Dan. right we're in uh i'm sorry chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 we're getting to that one that's coming you're right though how does he how, how is he talking to these rich landowners david Yeah, see, these, and by the way, these are, these are, he's not condemning just the rich for being rich. He's condemning rich people who use and abuse other people to get rich and stay rich, okay? So this is not, James is not against wealth. He's against the abuse of the wealthy. Um, and yes, uh, I, I, it's, he's kind of a little... Humorous, a little sarcasm here is saying, you're fattening yourself up, enjoy it. You're getting ready for a day of slaughter. There is something beyond this bus. There is another, there's a judgment day coming. You are accountable. Look what he says in verse four. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is something that's happening outside of the bus. There's a Lord of hosts to whom he's accountable. There's a Lord who hears the cries of those who have been used and abused by these wealthy landowners um, who use them for their own self-indulgence. That Lord who is outside the bus, who is, sitting in uh, the throne of the heavens, is not only just, he's also the judge. He has just standards, and he will judge people according to those just standards. So he's calling them to say, pull up the shades and let me show you what's coming, what's waiting for you. And then what will be the judgment for those who have not lived justly. Look at uh, verses 1 through 3. He says, here's what's coming for you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Enjoy your life of luxury now, he says. The miseries are coming. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have moth eaten. Uh, Your best seat on the bus is going to corrode. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. See, there's a judgment coming. There's a day in court coming, and they will eat your flesh like fire because you've laid up treasure in the last days. And as we said, you fatten your hearts for a day of slaughter. So, Imagine sitting in those house churches that James wrote his letter to. As we know, the Christians worshiped in homes and uh, they would copy these letters from the apostles and pass them around to be read during the worship time in these homes. You have to imagine now that sitting in those homes are likely some non-believing, non, not-Jesus-following rich folks who have been abusing and using people to get and stay rich. It's like, I mean, these people were going to bring their neighbors and friends that they've met in these new cities that they scattered to, they're going to bring them to church. They're going to bring them to introduce them to Jesus. (coughs) And so they could likely be sitting there listening to this. And James knows that. Just like this morning, there could be folks sitting here who still have the shades pulled down and they don't know Jesus. They're not following Jesus. But also, sitting in those homes are Christian poor folk. James has already talked about that in this letter. But they're Christians who are some of the very ones who have been abused by these rich landowners. And James is not just talking to the rich. He's talking to the Christians who have been taken advantage of by them. How do I know this? He says in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. And I think James is wanting to encourage those Christian folks who have been taken advantage of by, by others with these words. He wants them to see that there is something coming later, something that's above the sun, that all the work that they've done and and been abused in doing under the sun is not going to go unnoticed. Judgment will come. And here's, here's what I found interesting, that James calls the Lord in these verses, in these six verses, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. That should make A lot of us go, wait a minute, that sounds like an Old Testament name for God, Lord of hosts. It's actually, um, literally, uh, the Lord of Sabaoth. And you know, we sing that when we sing um, A Mighty Fortress, Uh, and we're talking about Jesus. We sing, Lord Sabaoth, his name, and age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He's the Lord of hosts, which means, Sabbath means armies. He's the Lord, as one popular worship song says today, he's the Lord of angel armies. That's literally what James is calling him. Why would James refer to the Lord as the Lord of angel armies in this scenario here? Well, first he wants the unrighteous uh, rich who are using and abusing people to know who they're dealing with. But I think he also wants to encourage the Christians because this triggers in my mind, at least, and I'm sure in many of theirs, the story of Elisha and his servant from 2 Kings 6. Do you remember this story where Elisha was God's prophet and the king of Syria hated Elisha? He couldn't stand him, and here's why. I love this. This, this just makes me smile. So every time Syria, uh, the king of Syria and his armies wanted to attack Israel, the Lord would tell Elisha and Elisha would tell the armies of Israel (coughs) and the armies of Israel would show up in that place and the king of Syria couldn't do what he was going to do. And this kept happening and happening and happening. And finally, somebody told the king of Syria, well, here's what's happening. They have this prophet named Elisha who keeps telling them where you're going to be and when. And so the king of Syria was like, we're going to take care of that guy. Then, And so he amasses all of his armies, and he comes to this little town called Dothan, not Alabama, where where Elisha lives. And overnight, they surround Dothan. And Dothan is kind of like Chattanooga. It's surrounded by mountain ridges. Well, they wake up in the morning, And Elisha's servant looks out, and he sees all of these horses and chariots and soldiers. And he says, Elisha, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. And Elisha smiles and prays, Lord. Um, Well, he says to the servant, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Pull up the shades, Lord, so that he can see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Well, you don't need to know the rest of the story to know that they were going to be okay. And I think that this is what James is trying to do by using this name, the Lord of Angel Armies. He's trying to encourage the Christians (coughs) sitting in the house church who had been abused and had experienced injustice after injustice after injustice. Pull the shades up, friends. The Lord of hosts is on your side and he's going to deal with these evil, unrighteous people. Their day is coming. Now, as I, as I studied this, this week, in both of these scenarios, I, I couldn't help but think of, of Jesus. What, what does this have to do with Jesus? How does this remind us of him? Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was crucified. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was willing to see Jesus, the righteous one, condemned and murdered just so that Judas could fatten his wallet. But even though Jesus was the righteous person, he did not resist. I think James, when he said, the righteous person who did not resist. I think he was thinking of his brother. And you know the story that when his disciples drew their swords to fight for Jesus, he told them, put your swords away. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He's the Lord of hosts. Jesus can command legions of angels in a moment. But he doesn't, because he says, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, if I call down as the Lord of hosts all these angels right now, then how will the promise of scripture ever happen that this is how it has to go down? I have to be crucified. what was it that must be so? It was that God had a plan that had to be fulfilled. Friends, you and I have been the unrighteous rich. Now, we may not be landowners who have frauded our employees, but we have used the resources we've been given by God for our own self-indulgence. And worse than that, we've been known to use people too. We have been Judas. We've been willing to give away the eternal treasure, Jesus, just so we can lay up earthly treasures for ourselves in the bus that won't satisfy or last. We're the ones that the Lord of angel armies should be coming to judge. We're the ones who deserve to weep and howl for the miseries that should come upon us. But at the moment that Jesus could have brought 12 legions of angels to deliver himself, he didn't call for them. He didn't call for them. Why? Because what must be so is that he would go to the cross And he would weep and he would howl for the miseries that should have come upon us. They came upon him. Let's go back to chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Look at that in your bulletin, in your Bible. Where do you see inside the bus or under the sun thinking in verses 13 and 14? That's a real question for you to answer. (laughs) Actually, Dan said it a while ago. You want to say it again, Dan? Right. Yeah. Um, the bus ride is short, James is saying. And it's when the bus ride comes to a stop, it's not like everything's done and we're annihilated. There's more. <laughs> There's more beyond the bus. And these folks are also living and thinking inside the bus by, by saying, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this place, we're going to stay there for a year, we're going to trade, we're going to do business, we're going to make a profit. As if that's it. And he's probably here talking to Christian business people. Now let me ask you this question before we assume the wrong things, Is there anything wrong with making plans? No. Correct. Is there anything wrong with making profit? No. James is not condemning making plans or making profits. So my question is, where do you see James encouraging us to think outside the bus or to think under the heavens when it comes to plans and prophets. In verse 15 would be your big hint right there. What's he say? Say it again. Yeah. The Lord, this is the other time in these two passages where he mentions the Lord. Uh, the Lord is in charge. And so, in our plans and in our making profits, we should be submitting to and seeking the Lord and His will. It's not that you don't make plans to go somewhere for a year, buy, sell, trade, and make a profit. That's, That's fine. But James is saying, don't do it exclusion, to the exclusion of the Lord. Don't ignore God in all of this. Um, and if the Lord wills is not, James doesn't mean for it to be something that you say at the beginning of your, beginning or end of your plans. Like, Lord willing, we're going to go over to Saudi Daisy, spend a year, buy, sell, and trade, and hopefully make a profit. Now, and it's fine to say, Lord willing, but that can become just a a, a thing you tack on to stuff. It's not just something that he wants you to say, it's something that you pray when it comes to your planning. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my plans, in my business, in my making a profit. It's not just about this or that that we will do, James is saying. It's it's a recognition that we will live according to the Lord's will. He says, if the Lord's will, we will live. First of all, my whole life is dependent upon the will of God, much less the this or that that I plan to do. It's about a heart that lives in a state of dependence on the one who is Lord over their life. So, one other question here. Help me out. Does this principle only apply to business people? He's he's talking about business people here. But does it only apply to business people? Who else makes plans? Give me some answers. Parents make plans. Who else make plans? Students make plans. What? Teachers. Teachers make plans. Who else makes plans? What? Everybody. Everybody. Pastors make plans. Churches make plans. Right? It's funny. It's like you read my notes. I wrote down parents, students, and churches. Um, we all make plans. So this principle applies to all of us. It's not... Uh, we should not be making plans without seeking and submitting, seeking the Lord and submitting to Him, praying about it. Um, parents, you have great plans and dreams for your for your kids, and I know many of you that you do pray about, but but we submit to the Lord's will in the lives of our students, of our kids. Students, you're making great plans for what am I going to do after high school? Am I going to go to school more? Am I going to go work somewhere? Am I going to get married? Who am I going to marry? Are you searching out the Lord's will and seeking his face and submitting to his will in all of those plans you're making? church,
1: and here I'll,
0: I'll talk to me, the pastor, and to our elders, are we praying and seeking the Lord's face before we even plan and as we plan? It's not, James, again, it's not about, he's not against making plans, but doing it from a heart that depends completely on the Lord, who has his will. Now look at verse 16. What does James call it when we live our lives uh, ignoring God and leaving God out? What does he call it in verse 16? He calls it arrogance. What else does he call it? Evil. Those are strong words. Hey, all I did was plan a business trip, and I forgot to pray about it. And you say that's arrogant and evil? Well, yes. But it's not just the one instance. It's the the heart attitude of I'm going to do this. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do my parenting. I'm going to do church. I'm going to do school. I'm going to do it. I got this. It's without a heart of dependence on the Lord and a prayer that says your will be done in my life, in my business, in my studies, in my parenting. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, look at verse 17. Verse 17 seems to not fit here. It's kind of a proverbial saying that Where does this come from? So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And most scholars that I read do believe that this was probably a Christian proverb that floated around at the time, and that James is taking it and applying it to this situation. So, verse 17 is a verse that you can take out of this context, and it's still true. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You might want to sit with that verse just this afternoon for a little while and think, what I know is the right thing to do, and I'm not willing to do it. But in this case, James is saying, if you know that you should live your life under the heavens, if you know that you should live your life dependent on God as the one who is Lord over every part of your life, if you know that and you don't do it, it's sin. And I think every one of us can say, well, that, that's, that's me. I've done that, I do that. And so the question is, what now? What now, James? And I think that James probably has in mind, again, behind all of this, his brother. So go back to the Garden of Gethsemane with me one more time. Jesus is the only human who has ever lived in complete and perfect dependence on God. Jesus is the only human who has lived with a heart that only wanted to do God's will. And here he is in the garden the night before he was crucified. Here he is at the ultimate place of submitting his life and plans to the will of his Father. With the cross only hours away, he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, Father, I know our plan. (laughs) I know our plan was that I would drink the cup of wrath that your people, my people deserve. I know the plan. But if it's possible for that plan to change, then let that pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here's Jesus in the ultimate intense moment of submitting the plan, his life and his plans to his father's will and saying, if the Lord wills, this is what we'll do. And he prayed again, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And what was that plan? The plan was to go to the cross to take on the judgment for our sin of living our lives as if we are our own Lords. Living our own lives as if we're our own Lords, um, as if we're the Lord that sits on the throne above the sun, of making our own plans and deciding our own purposes for what we do with the time and talents we've been given. That was the plan, that he would take the judgment for our sin of excluding God and being God. Jesus lived the life of not my will but yours in our place. And Jesus died for our failure to do what we know we ought to do, and that is to live a life that says to the Father, not my will but yours be done. So he did that so that we might be forgiven of that sin, but that's not all. <laughs> There's more. We get more. Remember, he gives more grace. We get more than his forgiveness. We get his spirit living in us. We get the spirit of Jesus, the one who lived his whole life tattooed across his life, not my will, but yours be done. We get his spirit living in us. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, that all who have Jesus have the spirit of Jesus living in them. Paul says, you have received the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father, And what he's referring to is that prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden that night. The prayer of Abba, Father. Ultimately, not my will, but yours be done. The spirit of Jesus who always depended on his father and always wanted to do his father's will lives in you who follow him and trust him and rest in him. And so, friends, you can know that that's your heartbeat now. What your heart wants to do more than anything else is to make plans with a heart that says, not my will, but yours be done. You see, James, he just wants us to live the Jesus-shaped life that Jesus died and rose again and lives for us to live. He wants us to open the shades and look at Jesus and all that He is and all that He's done and all that He will be for us when He comes. Because He knows that'll change the way we live inside the bus. Father, there's so much more to that. And we pray that as we come to this table, you will help us to survey the wondrous cross, to look at it, to examine it, to open the shades and to look at what's outside of the life you've given us to live. Jesus and his story and his glory and all that he's doing to make all things new, that's outside the bus. And when we survey that what you did on the cross and through the empty tomb and rising to the throne in heaven to make all that a reality? Then we say, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And in fact, Lord, all of nature, everything, if I could have all of nature, if I could have everything that's under the sun and I could wrap it up and give it to you as an offering, it would still be too small because love so amazing and so divine demands my soul and my life and my all. Father, would would you open the shades for us? And help us to see Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.